listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Scott Martin. Scott is the administrator for Chattanooga's Department of Parks and Outdoors. His career encompasses everything outdoors from Idaho to Virginia to Kentucky and now to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Scott, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your career journey in the outdoor industry, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Oh, good question. Uh, I am a coffee drinker by habit, and my morning breakfast is always liquid and black. <laughs> liquid and black. Caffeinated <laughs> or decaffeinated? As you will probably uh, ascertain in a few minutes, highly, probably overly caffeinated. Yeah. Does it get to you at any point? No, no, no. I'm one of those guys. Um, I do have a creative window. I feel it like nine to probably 1130 are my best hours of thinking and working. And I don't know if it's caffeine crash or something, but that's my best window. Do you cut it off at some time and go to another beverage of choice? Well, I did live in Kentucky, so you can imagine, you know, what you need to do in that case. So, um, well, they pair well together. They pair well together. Definitely yes. pair well together. Well, welcome. I know you're relatively new to Chattanooga, but you're well known across your industry. And I had the opportunity to hear you speak at Rotary about Chattanooga as a city park. And we're going to get into all of that. But I'm really more interested at this point about your career. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up a little bit south of Richmond, Virginia, a little town called Hopewell that no one knows a whole lot about, but your classic southern mill town. It was a paper mill town. My dad was a city manager. And so I grew up around local government and swore my whole life growing up, my brother and I, we'd never get in government. What are you doing, dad? You're an idiot, you know, and all that. And then you turn around and you go, oops, what happened here? So ended up in this space and I do love public service. And I think my family growing up, public service was, was always the calling card, be it in the nonprofit sector, the government sector, volunteerism. We were very much taught the value of public service. Is your brother in government now also? He was. He went a little higher level. Uh, he was director of communications for the governor of Virginia, worked with the Republican Governors Association. He's now in private sector. But um, yeah, both of us ended up in that. Interesting. So you grew up in Virginia. Were you an outdoors guy in Virginia? Was that part of what your family did or is that just something you discovered later in life? No. Um, you know, I'm Gen X and I'm not sure we're the last generation where our summers were our parents throwing us out in the morning. And I still don't know how I ate lunch most summers. I don't recall lunch, but somehow it was taken care of by someone. And then you come home at the end of the day. So that was my experience growing up, like so many kids. And, you know, the fear is we just don't have that or hear that anymore and what that means. And one of the great things about that was that we didn't have cell phones. So where cell phones bring security, they also bring worry. Yeah. You know, if you just left the house and cell phones aren't in the culture— Oh, he's fine until I hear differently. That's exactly right. <laughs> and now parents look and go, what the hell is he doing over there? <laughs> yeah. Or there was the quiet chain of command around the neighborhood of parents watching us that we didn't even know we were being watched, which was even better. There was a safety net that was invisible. Yeah, very true. So you were an outdoor kid, grew up in Virginia. How did you end up at Boise State? Wow. Um, it's a ridiculous story, but I met my wife at Lynchburg College, a small little liberal arts college in Virginia. It was freshman. We were dating, and um, it just didn't fit us. It was... It just didn't fit us. And so we decided, just the two of us, not married at the time, that we were going to transfer to Boise State and then share that information with our parents. And my wife's father, a little bit shorter now, was six foot four Presbyterian minister, could snap me like a dry twig. And I'm taking his little girl, his precious little girl. And uh, the good news is he was totally cool because he was a ranger in Yellowstone in college. 
And he had the approach, all of our parents did, if you go west when you're young. And it was uh, it was a great experience for me. It shaped who I am today in some really powerful ways, what I'm sure we'll get into. And I, I'm just so lucky to have been there. It was a big, an incredible experience. You just said something that really struck home for me. Go west while you're young. I mentioned earlier, I've got a 27-year-old daughter, graduated from Swanee, and she takes a job in Alaska as a glacier guide. In the off-season, she works in either Nevada or in Arizona. And as a parent, I'm going... What did I do to run her up? But I'm so glad to hear that because it is formative. How did that form who you are? Wow. Um, well, Boise was a unique city. So I grew up in local government and my dad, like local government in the South, and I always like to tell a story, you know, when it was serious government pops and the governor was going to fly in with the cardboard check and, you know, we're announcing the big company coming, whatever. Um, I knew that serious government was police and fire and public works. And if Pops was here, I know he would agree. Parks was kind of off to the side. It was kind of like, yeah, you play sports, you play balls, we build some parks. Not so in Boise. In Boise, when I lived there, I lived there for about 12 years, they did not write a single economic development incentive check. They never incented a company to locate there. They said, we're going to build a great city with great schools, safe streets, and beautiful parks. And we trust business to take care of itself. And during that time, they led the nation in wealth creation and job creation and Micron Technologies and Hewlett Packard. You can name the companies. That was instrumental to me because it's the big common sense thing that we sometimes want to take a shortcut around. But if you build a great city, great cities will take care of themselves. And getting to Chattanooga is not an accident either. It took me 30 years to get here, and I'm so glad the door opened. But 1997-ish, my mentor, who was director of parks there, we made a list of eight cities in the U.S. where we said, this is where parks can shape the city and the classic tradition. Bellingham, Boise, Fort Collins, you can name them. And Chattanooga was on that list for us in 1997. Well, as far back as 97. Yeah. And I'm a Southern boy. They knew I wasn't Western. I got so homesick. I'd go to the bait store and buy crickets and release them out our window so I could hear crickets <laughs> at night. That's how bad. I mean, I'm just Southern. So they knew that would happen. But that was the point is you want to be in a city that values its place and has an extraordinary landscape, extraordinary cultural stories, and is confident enough that it doesn't have to do a keep up with the Joneses that just sits in itself and says, this is special. How do we build on our specialness? To that point, there was a point probably 15, 20 years ago, people said, oh, we want to be the boulder of the South. And I think the thinking in Chattanooga has come along to, no, we just want to be the best Chattanooga. And I think that's really where the city's going now. And that's a nice thing to see. So you go to school at Boise. What are you majoring in it? Yeah, undergrad political science and economics. And then I got my master's out there in natural resource policy. Oh, very good. So did you stay in Boise when you graduated? I did. Um, Boise just wrapped its arms around my wife and I. In so many ways, I was able to come on board a parks department. Now, how I joined, it's ridiculous. I had no plan. I was a National Park Service ranger in college, so saved up all my money to get the ring for my wife, take the ring out to the wife, propose to her, zero plan beyond that. Blew the wad on the ring. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Randomly, in front of her apartment one night, a car breaks down flat tire. I go out to fix the flat tire with the person. The guy who pulls over next to me helps me. He's the graphic designer for the Boise Parks Department. We're sitting there changing the tire. And he goes, well, you should come by and talk to us. And I went and talked to him and met the director. And he gave me an internship that lasted four years based on fixing a tire and really poured into me. And um, I was so lucky because they gave me every opportunity in the world to learn about how you shape a city through parks and probably the nation's best parks agency. So you didn't go to school and have a plan that said, you know what, in 20 years, I'm going to be the director of parks and outdoor in a major city or in a mid-level city. You 
didn't stumble into it because the interest was there, but you just kind of see where the path led you. Yeah. I mean, that's, I knew I wanted to do something, but you're 22 years old and you're dumb idiot. You know, you're just trying to figure out what, what do I do now? I mean, and the bravery of idiocy is always helpful. So yeah. But once I was in parks, I knew that was, that's my lane. I mean, I was almost an assistant county administrator in Virginia. I've worked in a variety of different things, but my love is parks and the connection of with people and landscape. Then take us through that journey. You're in Boise. You get into what you've identified as this is what I want to do. You're in Boise. Then what happens? Well, Boise was great because we were growing so fast, much like Chattanooga now. Micron Technologies, they'll tell a story to tell a story. Micron's the biggest employer in Boise, a lot of semiconductor. Okay, well, imagine you are hypothetically the HR recruiter for Micron Technologies in little old Boise, Idaho, and you're trying to pull talent in from Cambridge, Mass., New York, Silicon Valley. That's a tough sell. Mm Mm-hmm. No pro teams, no Yeah, it's a different nightlife. And, and and perception and reality, are, they're two different things. So I had the great opportunity when you're an intern, you're in rooms you shouldn't be in. And I was in one of those rooms where the CEO of Micron came in and said to our mayor, very Republican, very conservative town, came into the mayor and said, look, here's the deal. When I'm bringing candidates in for Micron to recruit them, I buy their airplane tickets. So they're sitting on the window seat on the right-hand side of the plane to catch the sunset view of the Rockies and all their splendor. I am staging the visit and I'm watching growth swallow up our foothills. I'm watching houses like popcorn eat it up. And if we lose that advantage, if we lose that open space, we lose those mountain bike trails, if we lose that elk hunting, if we lose that, I've lost my competitive advantage. And I watched the mayor take that insight and turn it into a ballot measure that had to get a supermajority passage. And I was part of the team that did it, very lucky, that passed the first conservation initiative in the state of Idaho to preserve land on the city's urban edge. Since then, they've leveraged it I don't know, 10, 12 times over, and they preserved close to 50,000 acres on the edge of the city. Wow, what a story. And, and there's two points in that I want to go back on. One is, what was the reaction in that room when here's the CEO of Micron Technology saying something like that? It had to be a bit of a chill to people going, oh, crap, we're about to screw this thing up. There is. You know, we take these things for granted, and that's not unique to Boise or Chattanooga. It's so easy to take things for granted. And the thing is with cities, though, is they're always changing and evolving. And you either shape the city or it shapes you. And that was the instructive letter. You can't count on something just to happen the way it should happen. You have to take focused, disciplined steps to get the trajectory you want. And the great thing about cities, unlike any other thing humans have created, we control them. Mm -hmm. We, We make decisions every day on what we want them to live like, look like, feel like, breathe like. These are human being, you and me in a room, decisions. You know, we'll never change the Grand Canyon. And there are big problems in this world. I, you know, climate change and and Ukraine, man, there are massive challenges out there. I can tell you, though, you can make a city work and you can particularly do it in the cities the size of Chattanooga. This 200 to 300,000 population city where people still make a difference and it's not bureaucracies and big organizations are hoping someone jumps in. It's the best size. It's the best size. I can't agree more with that. I love the size of this city. I have no desire to be in a bigger city. One of the things I really liked about when I moved here to Chattanooga is you were welcomed to be involved if you wanted to be involved. That doesn't happen in every city. No, it doesn't. And we have a line, you probably heard the mayor say it, but we believe it. Bigger isn't better. Better is better. Well, I want to go back to one thing you said in the Micron Technology story. You were an intern and you were in a room you shouldn't have been in. Yeah. I love that. Because I don't think people appreciate enough when they have opportunities like that. And what did you gain out of those kind of things? Of Just kind of being there and knowing that, look, I'm not contributing to this, but I'm going to absorb everything. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the humanity is really the takeaway. 
media and everyone else always wants to cover the fights and the arguments. And the thing I've always carried with me is that's actually not the story because the fights are going to happen. People are going to bicker. They're not going to get along. They're going to have bad days. What amazed me about leaders is they lean into that and see beyond it. And they find the positivity and the optimism and the hope and the focus. And that was really the takeaway is don't let the naysayers, don't let the negatives get you down. Negative is going to happen. We're human beings is what we do. Stay focused on the possibilities. Focus on that. It's a Ronald Reagan maxism, but it's true. It's amazing we can get done when you don't care who gets the credit. To watch servant-based leaders do that, I think, was good. The other thing that I took away, and again, when you're 24 years old, Mike, to have these opportunities, particularly in the South, where we can get down on ourselves and we can get trapped, but to watch a city say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not playing that game, that was so big that you can make a difference. Now, I've been very lucky. I haven't had yet, uh, knock on plastic, the uh, midlife crisis. I still believe in the power of people, the power of potential, the power of cities, the power of change. It's a real thing. I'm a 50-year-old person telling you I wake up every day more excited, more with a sense of urgency to do right than I did when I was 25. Oh, that's a great place to be. Yeah. So you got a great education in Boise, not just at the university, yeah. but with your first experience in your chosen career. Yeah. How long were you there? We were there 12 years. And, um, you know, it's funny, but, you know, it's the South. Football had a big deal to do with it, too. I obviously didn't play. Look at me. I'm a pencil neck geek. But I was lucky to be around some of those great coaches at the Boise State football program. They were playing pretty well at that time, too. Still do. Still do. I just run it. Like, for my people, number three winning record. But, but it was so cool to be a part of that because the Chris Petersons, Dan Hawkins, those guys were philosophers as much as coaches. And to watch a small program grow up and to think about that as it applies to our work. If you're never going to compete with an Alabama. Right. But if you can find your niche and find out how to maximize the potential of your people in the right place, you can do some pretty special things. And it was a, I don't know if it was serendipity, but there was a culture of, yeah, we can achieve excellence with what we have uh, that really informed a lot of my work. How much does attitude play in what you do? When, when I'm saying that is the example you gave right there, you've got to have the community convinced that it doesn't matter our size. It doesn't matter that this city's bigger than us. We can really compete. Yeah, there's two levels, I think. I think one is you just expect success. You demand success. It's not a negotiable. And it's not, I expect you to work hard. You expect me to work hard. We're going to each carry our load. That was the baseline. It didn't matter if you were government, private sector, whatever. You expect the best. Doesn't mean everyone will. We are always a C-plus country. We're a C-plus organization. So you got to you know, you know what you are. And the second is a little bit of situational awareness. We were very keen in Boise. And I think I feel it in Chattanooga. There, they didn't want to be the next Denver or Phoenix. And I feel that in Chattanooga, we don't want to be the ones that screwed up and turned into Nashville or Atlanta. Boy, I love hearing that. I just got back from a wedding in Nashville, and I'd been going to Nashville for, gosh, 30 years. It is not the same town. It is ruled by party buses and bachelorette parties. And yeah. it, I feel Nashville sold its soul. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've only been here a year and a half, but Chattanooga's always been on our list. There is a soulfulness here. And there's a welcoming of new voices and new folks that are moving. But there's not a sense of move here and change everything. There's a sense of move here, make things better. There's a sense of our locals make things better. And, hey, we have all the challenges of the American South. That means richness. It means trauma. It means hurt. This is a complex landscape. And I would argue to your comment earlier, we don't have the luxury to be as easy as Boulder of the East. The depth of hurt, the depth of soul, the depth of art, the beauty of ecology here is so much richer than the front range of the Rockies, so much richer. And it's going to ask more of us to preserve it, elevate it, and then build upon it. When you say the depth of the hurt, 
Talk a little bit more about that, what you mean by that. Well, I think you have to talk about race in the American South. And this administration that I work for, I part of the reason I took the job here is they're not hiding from the hard things. But how do we address the economic disparity? How do we address the fact that I can drive you through our parks, parks I am responsible for? So let me own that sin from where we sit now. I can take you to Renaissance Park, and we'd say it's beautiful and it's high-performing. I can drive you three miles to the south to Boulevard Park. And if you don't feel the echoes of Jim Crow or something is wrong or your your little radar doesn't go off that we're not doing a good enough job, I'm probably not having the same dialogue or same value issue. So we work in that space. Now, I've been here 23 years. I have no idea where Boulevard Park is. Yeah, it's out Rossville Boulevard. And it's okay. It's Hey, this is and, and the thing that gives me hope is it's fixable. The industry I am, the beauty is it's fixable. We can make parks look pretty. And I would argue, uh, now we'll totally nerd out, but I'm an Olmstead guy, the guy who designed Central Park and that sort of thing. He said, you know, these parks are, they're fundamental to what it means to be an American because a family that may live near Boulevard Park, for example, may not have the economic means to go to the Smokies for a vacation. They may not have the economic means to go to Florida for a beach vacation. That park to them has to deliver that. It is more important that it delivers that than anything else. So it's incumbent that we make it as beautiful, safe, fun, clean, and beautiful as it can possibly be. And the good thing is, this is doable stuff. We don't have to invent it. It's all out there. We just have to fund it, fix it, figure it out. And don't have to attract a company in to help us do it. It's it's just all within our own power. It is. And I think the metaphor I've been using with the team is, look, don't worry about the cover of Garden and Gun anymore. Don't worry about Outside Magazine. Great point. We don't need to. Let's build a bunch of great neighborhoods. The rest will always take care of itself. We don't have to show off to anybody. It's okay. We're good. That's a great attitude. Very refreshing to hear. I want to talk more about Chattanooga. I want to know how you got here. Where'd you go after Boise? Yeah, Boise went back to Roanoke, Virginia, outside of it, Franklin County, Virginia, which is Smith Mountain Lake, was park director, economic development director for about 12 years, and then um, had the great fortune of my life to be recruited to do a project in Louisville called the Parklands of Floyd's Fork by the Jones family, the founders of Humana, who did a moment of philanthropy that is rare in American history. The family of enormous success and wealth, uh, David Jones, founder of Humana, uh, the only man in America to create three Fortune 100 companies, grew up in Louisville, uh, Yale, Navy, the whole story, and is working on his legacy and had a moment where he's like, you know, I give to the symphony, I've done an arts center, I've done this, I've done this. What's the best thing I can do for the community? And he went back to Olmstead because Louisville is one of four cities in the U.S. where the Frederick Law Olmstead plan was fully completed. It's Buffalo, Boston, Rochester, and Louisville, where the parkways and parks were built. He grew up on an Olmstead park. And he said, well, why don't we just do what Olmstead did again? And here's the big idea from that is Olmstead did those big parks we know. You know Central Park. You know Prospect Park. Well, when those parks were built, they were at the suburban edge. Those were not urban core parks. The parks went in ahead of development. The key is to put the green infrastructure in first, shape the city. So we went outside of Louisville, just on the outer ring, and acquired 4,000 acres, raised $180 million, and built a park in seven years, and did it as a nonprofit that doesn't charge entry, but gives the community a 4,000-acre park. So I was part of that team that executed at that scale uh, as a nonprofit Wow! with a lot of business partners, corporate partners, a lot of federal support. It was a great opportunity to learn how entrepreneurialism works for conservation. That's, I'm going to say unique approach, but it's really not unique. You're taking what was done centuries ago and applying it to today, but I'm sure it's not every city embraces that. No, and it's not every day that you have David Jones come and sit in your office that you know folks at Harvard B School would give their left leg to be able to spend an hour with, and he's just dripping the knowledge of how to be a leader, how to create to you every day. It was an incredible uh, life-changing experience. So we did that. Um, I was the park director there, 
and then was asked to be the CEO of another conservancy in Louisville, just across the river in southern Indiana, and got that started. I've kind of always been in the startup role. I don't know why that works out. But, um, you know, by the way, exits in the startup world of parks, they're really not like private sector exits. Not quite. Not huh? quite. Um, <laughs> but was doing Origin Park, which is a 600-acre park on the Falls of the Ohio, a seminal moment in the U.S. experience because Falls of the Ohio is where Lewis and Clark, they actually left from the site we were working on. The Underground Railroad moved through the site. There was 10,000 years of Native American settlement. It was now telling funny stories. In the early 1800s, it was illegal to duel in Kentucky, but totally legal to duel in Indiana. So we bought the dueling grounds where Andrew Jackson dueled, Aaron Burr dueled. I mean, these guys, this was a rugged space. Did they take reservations for their duels? I don't know how it worked, but it was sketch. Um, (laughs) And we were building a park there, and I was very happy and very ensconced. Uh, We had just rolled out the master plan. We had just raised the first $30 million for it. I was happy and working away. And then uh, Mayor Kelly called me as I was driving on vacation. And um, yeah, I, you know, he were you expecting you. that call? I had put in my name when they said we're building back the parks around here. It was very weird in our industry. If folks don't know, Chattanooga did not have a proper parks department for the last 12 years. In my industry, everyone was shocked. It was a national scandal of sorts. And when I saw the mayor was putting it back together, yeah, I threw my name in the hat immediately. But government being what it is and the wheels are slow, I think I sent in my application in June and didn't get a call from the mayor until September. So had had you put it out of your mind? I had put it out of my mind entirely. And I was very happy. I had great board. There's still great folks there. It was breaking their heart to leave. And it broke my heart to leave them in a lot of ways. But Chattanooga is a singular moment. And we turned the car around to come back and interview because when Tim Kelly calls you, you answer. Yeah. Well, that's- <laughs> That's a good point. Go back to not having a parks department. It was wrapped up under which department at that point? Well, it was fracked out into a bunch of them. So you had YFD, Youth and Family Development, doing some recreation. You had Public Works doing park maintenance. You had Economic Development doing Outdoor Chattanooga. And then you had an open space division doing its thing. Public Art was in a different department. We didn't have a communications, external relation, partnership program. So it was fracked out in a bunch of different places. So there was no overall vision? No. And when you got here, it was already becoming a separate division. Yeah. Yeah. The mayor, that was one of his platforms is we're putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's most of my job over the last year was helping this team of great professionals. And we have great professionals littered across this team, but relearning how to trust one another, relearning how to work together, relearning how to blow up silos and helping them. It almost had been, and it always can be this way. This is not, I'm not diminishing anyone's work. You can have a mindset of scarcity. Mm-hmm. You can enter a mindset of defensiveness and, oh, my gosh, we're never going to have enough. We're never going to have enough. You have to switch that to a mindset of value. And resources flow to good ideas and resources will flow to competence and resources flow to carried landscapes. So we're on that arc now pulling it back. And talk a little bit more about when you got here, you had to reestablish all this and get people refocused. And Because that's true in a lot of business situations, too. How did you go about that? How did you go about bringing this team that had been scattered across many different departments and then bring them together and say, okay, this is what we're going to be. Well, I screwed up more than I succeeded. Don't most good leaders? Well, I hope so. Um, I come in with a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, and that can be off-putting and it can be confusing. And that's my challenge as a leader is focusing myself to help my team focus because I'm jumping to C, D, E, and F before I even laid A and B and build the trust. So I think through a lot of missteps and, and building trust and leaning on people, I had to do that and relearn. But Really, I think it's very important, and this is ongoing, is reaffirming across our broad community that parks are not just these little pieces of a puzzle. And they're not utilitarian things where you go, oh, I'll serve this audience and build this or I'll build that. 
they are city shaping infrastructure. We have the hardware of trails and parks and conserved lands. And then we have the software of the programming, the activation that goes along with it. The symmetry of those two together is what matters most. And that's what differentiates the great cities on the globe from the mediocre. It's why Auckland, Wellington, Vienna, Oslo are better places to live than Toledo, Tulsa. It's about the connection and the systemic approach to them year after year after year, and it builds up. What is your overall vision now for the city and the parks? Well, you've heard us say it. It's a city and a park, and we really mean that. We talked about the human stories earlier, Mike. We haven't talked about the ecological piece. We live in the richest, most biodiverse part of North America. Within a mile of this, where we're sitting doing this recording right now, there's more ecological diversity than the entire state of Nevada. That's amazing. It's amazing. It? Yeah. And and it was so weird when I lived out West and you still hear it as, y'all, you got to go West to experience nature. I bought that line of crap for way too long. Yeah. We have more here. So the question is to me, how you blend those cultures, those landscapes, those stories, the peoples and, and our ecology together in the city, this mid-sized city where seeing a warbler is every part of my day as getting on my super 25G internet service, yeah. where I see fox. I know how to identify the flowers. I catch a smallmouth bass. I play ball with my friends. I know it feels idealistic, but it's really not because I'm a very urbanist person. I think our future is cities. If we're going to figure out a way to make this place habitable and it's living close together, comfortably together, where it doesn't, you don't have to earn a huge income to have a great quality of life. You have a great park right outside your door that you enjoy. And, and that's where I think we're going to push ourselves. It's almost like a nature super highway of crossroads of all the migrations of whether it's birds or animals over the centuries and centuries, all kind of cross right here in Chattanooga. Yeah. Chattanooga had to be a city. It just too much stuff comes together here. We didn't have a choice. Atlanta's a completely made up city. There did not need to be a city there. There's no railroad. There's no rivers if whatever, but we have to be a city. Right. We just got the Parks and Outdoors plan, the first one in 25 years, adopted by council. And in the slide deck, we showed them a slide, Mike, where we said, oh, by the way, on May the 5th, uh, we did the radar analysis, and 8 million birds passed over Chattanooga between midnight and 3 a.m. <laughs> 8 million. And you watch council go, I had no idea. So many of us have no idea. And if you can pitch through that little I had no idea, wonder and awe and surprise and love. And I know it's weird to hear bureaucrats say it, but those are the words I really, I think are foundational. You should love this place and we should make it easy to love. Yeah. What's been the biggest challenge for you in this year and a half since you came in? Uh, it's the speed. It's the speed. I'm coming from the nonprofit entrepreneurial sector. I'm used to making a decision on Monday, executing on Tuesday. Now you have government. Behind. You do. Now the twist of that though, is I think it's time to pencil that. The excuse of it's government, that's crap. We have man-made rules. We can fix them and change them. So I'm not the most patient person, and I'm probably not going to be the most welcome person for a while, but there's going to have to be a lot of why answers I need shortly because opportunity is flying by us. Development is flying to us. If we do not move with the same speed as the private sector, we're not going to be able to build the city of the future that folks want. That's an important point with private development coming in. If you can't fly at the same speed, then we'll be going God, it would have been nice to have that that ridge that we had there. That's it, or innovate. You know, it, pickleball blew up. Yeah. How quickly can we convert tennis courts to pickleball courts? How quickly can we meet the market and where it moves to? That's that's life and death for us. Mm-hmm. Do you think pickleball is going to have the stickiness and be there 20 years from now? I don't care. <laughs> I, I, no, and I don't say that to be glib. I, Central Park in New York is the greatest park in America because it has been able to adapt and chase all the trends that have come and gone. And if we build great landscapes, the software can adapt very easily. That's a unique way of looking at it. A uh, couple more questions. What can the average Chattanooga and average Hamilton County resident do to support 
outdoors and what you're doing? Oh, on the very most simple level, plant native plants in your yard. It's very simple. When you go to the Home Depot or you go to the barn or you go to any one of our nurseries, when you make a decision on what you want to plant, ask them, are they native? Will Home Depot or Lowe's know that? Probably not Home Depot and Lowe's, but the barn and those places certainly will. Plant natives. We're Americans. We live in the South. We have literally the richest plant selection that we could ever want. Why wouldn't we plant natives that all of our little critters love it and everything else? So get out of Nandinas and um, the next crepe myrtle I see, I'm going to punch somebody, but uh, (laughs) we can do better. And the neat thing about plant selection is you can actually tune your own yard. You can tune it for the birds you want, the critters you want. It's a dial. Give an example of that because I've got a house and frankly, the plants were there. Yeah. So how do I tune my yard to see the birds I want to see? Yeah, great question. So Audubon's website has a whole guide that you can get onto, and it can tell you what trees and species you should plant for different birds. But the easy ones that we think of first, it's our rubecchias, our coneflowers, our cardinal flowers. Anything like that is going to attract the hummingbirds that you want. For trees, our oak trees, our willow oaks, our post oaks, those are bug magnets, and that means the warblers in the fall migration will absolutely love you. Every little choice you make can tune this thing up, and you can have fun. Red buds are a great early color. We all love the pink flowers. For the spring migrators that are coming through, they're where the bugs are too. The spring migrators are working their way because when they get here, they already flew across the Gulf of Mexico. They're having a tough time. You can give them landing spots to recover as they make their way north. So little little choices. And they're going to eat those bugs. They'll eat the bugs. And make it more pleasant at night. They will. So we're all interconnected. Mm-hmm. All right, last question for you, and think about it a second. Go back to your 25-year-old self. What would you tell yourself is important for a happy life? Ooh, happy life. Um, I mean, the easy answer, and I'm very lucky, is is find something you love to do and doesn't really feel like work, even though it is. Um, but follow your passion. And then make sure you don't major in the minors. It's so easy to let the little fights, the little annoyances, the little egos, and gosh, with social media today, the negative energy from that can just swallow you whole. Yeah. Um, I would always say, don't lose it. I think if COVID taught us anything, and I'm the park guy saying it, so let me own it. It's the value of just the simple things of getting outdoors, breathing, smelling, being aware, being present, being in the moment, and letting nature and letting your neighbors and letting it all wash over you and, and just be so thankful that we're so blessed to be in this moment together and be thankful. And from that spirit of gratitude, you'd be amazed what can happen. Yeah, what a great message, Scott. I'm really excited you're in town, and we look forward to uh, living in a city in a park. When I heard you bring that up at Rotary, it made so much sense. And the fact that the Boise example of we don't have to give companies incentives to come here, that's really where we want to be. You're lucky to be here is the way we should look at it, and we're all lucky to be here. I agree. We are lucky to be here. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.